0: Your body is your job. You have to have it running optimally or else it will run into the same issues. So we can't treat a first responder population the same as we would as a weakened warrior type, a general population type, because you're using your bodies differently under different demands and under different frequencies. We would always encourage exercise as a means as to help assist with that. But using exercise as a way to exacerbate the stress is definitely something we might be inadvertently doing. Recognizing 60% or below is ideal. 90% working on the lower repetitions is kind of ideal when you're in kind of that window after something critically has happened. We always preach that you need to
1: understand what your week looks like currently and where your biggest stressors might be. And I know a lot of the response might be, well, we don't know. It could happen tomorrow, it could happen then. But there are still days of the week that you work and there's days of the week that you might not work. So let's look at the week strategically and understand. So if I know that my musculoskeletal system needs 48 to 72 hours to repair from heavy resistance training, should I do that the day before I head into shift or should I maybe put that on the front end of the week so that my system can repair itself a little bit differently? Maybe I'm actually a little bit more prime potentiated for the workload associated with that. The, the hopefulness thats that you'd be a little bit more conscious about how your week and the trends of the week look.
2: You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast brought to you by the Assisi Officer
3: Foundation.
4: and we can learn from those mistakes and together we can bridge the divide our entire team is here today hosting an episode for the ATO listeners out there nursing nagging chronic injuries dealing with constant pain lacking optimal performance or even aiming for complete wellness and longevity our guests are experts in orthopedic and sports injury management. Their team is FIRST. We introduced FIRST in episode 27 with mental health psychologist Dr. Heather Twedell. Today we have Dr. Chase Twedell, a licensed physical therapist, earned his doctorate of physical therapy from the University of Southern California. He was a two-sport NCAA athlete playing both football and baseball. He is a board certified clinical specialist in orthopedics. Nate Burunda, a collegiate basketball player with undergraduate and graduate expertise in exercise science. He has unique experience as a performance specialist for pro athletes, Netflix, and Warner Brothers actors. Nate is a published co-author in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. There is power and freedom in pain-free movement, these dedicated guests strive for solutions to physical impairments and pursue progressive resiliency to the rigorous demands of a first responder. Please welcome Team First, a revolutionary organization designed for our culture. Thank you for coming, Dr. Twiddell and Nate. Welcome.
3: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.
4: You guys, go ahead and tell us about First. So our, our listeners really understand what you're representing.
0: Yeah. So first, um, really got started um, with Dr. T, my wife, Heather Twiddell's idea of really addressing the mental health challenges that face first responders. Um, as you know, she does come from a first responder family background. Both her father and brother were SWAT officers and currently are, is a SWAT officer, her brother. Um, So she has a firsthand knowledge of kind of the challenges within that population, and that drove her career to really address specifically these issues. As marrying into the family and kind of recognizing her passion for dealing with these type of things, there was a clear need and a line that could be drawn between addressing the physical components with the mental health issues. Um, And the more we looked at that, we more realized how much each support the other mental health driving physical performance and vice versa um, so with my career and also dealing with first responders as patients and clients in the past dealing with different injuries from surgeries to just chronic issues um, i can continue to see the same components pop up over time is just wearing down fatigue not taking up time for themselves and i think that's what dr t really hammers home is First responders are great at taking care of everybody else. It's really hard for them to turn around and take care of themselves. And that's really kind of where this kind of got born from, is really trying to reach out and help this population mentally, yes, but then also try to tackle these physical components before they become bigger issues and try to help that mental aspect along the way.
4: Thank you. Uh, I know that your mentality is that you treat first responders as athletes, and we appreciate that, but explain that more.
0: You know, with both Nate and my backgrounds, Nate specifically dealing more specifically higher level athletes over a long period of time. I myself have treated Mm -hmm. and trained NFL MLB players. You see that there's a correlation between managing general population individuals who are weekend warriors. They go do their jobs. They sit in front of a computer all day. They go home. Handling that population versus a population that is highly dynamic, uses their body as a tool, as I like to say, the same way an athlete would. Your body is your job. You have to have it running optimally or else it will run into the same issues. So we can't treat a first responder population the same as we would as a weekend warrior type, a general population type, because you're using your bodies differently under different demands and under different frequencies. We're talking every day trainings on the streets, doing your job, that's a very different set of challenges than playing pickup basketball. So I think when we sat down and looked at this, we realized we have to meet these type of demands very specifically and address it through the kind of that mentality of and that scope of a professional athlete, what do they deserve, what do they get? Let's apply that same approach towards a first responder population.
2: Officers go from a sedentary state and have to snap into action daily, hourly, and by the minute this constantly, uh, causes us to have more injuries. What, what do y'all do? And what would y'all recommend for officers, uh, in any first responder, how, how to manage that? Uh,
1: from the performance side of things, what we like to do is we always start with like a needs analysis. So understanding the specific movement patterns associated with the task. So whatever job you have, if it's uh, there is long periods of sitting, there's standing, there's maybe excessive rotational movements, whatever. Inside of your training program, we want to understand if you've ever expressed force through different joint angles. So we're looking at overall kinematics of human movement and understanding that there are different joint angles that your ankle moves through, your knee, your hip. Um, if you're just used to doing you know, goblet squats in the gym and that's kind of what you do and you never have exposed your body or tissue to higher velocity movements at different joint angles you're actually setting yourself up for a little bit of failure there.
2: We can drive around for hours and all of a sudden get out on a dead sprint and run across uneven ground, go over fences and then have to physically fight a suspect. And my back is pretty much shot from 20 years of wearing a gun belt and and doing that type of work. Can you explain why low back injuries are so prevalent in the first responder world?
0: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's, number one across the board, it's number one nationwide, really in terms of general population, but specifically in first responders, the low back is the center point of the body. So if there's compensations, or if you wanna term it immobility or weakness in the joints that connect to the torso, the back will take the brunt of that. It is the center point. And a lot of times what gets missed in training the body and just trying to prepare it is a lot of core performance. And of course, if you ever had a low back issue, and you look at kind of the staple approach towards mitigating that, training your core is always gonna be the number one thing a physician would recommend, a physical therapist would recommend, a high level physical performance individual would recommend, but it really gets underutilized as a way to address that issue. It's kind of this yucky thing you gotta do on the side of the gym, I'm gonna do a couple Mm -hmm. crunches and call it a day. Um, And there are a hundred ways to address core deficits rather than just doing a sit up. And there's actually ways that are quite detrimental to performing some form of core routine. Uh, technique is really everything as we know that, and there's a lot of ways to do it wrong, uh, ironically enough, it's just a sit up, but there's a lot of ways you can actually do it quite wrong, um, where are actually predispose you to hurt yourself more. To carry that further, so if we're not really training it properly, just on our own or as a group, but then you go do something like sit in a squad car for hours. You know, one of the biggest things I really try to hammer home when we do some of these trainings is the research is pretty clear the longer you sit specifically they did a research study that looked at sitting in cars for up to 4 hours your low back your low back pain prevalence increases 200%. Mm. I mean that's a staggering amount but it makes sense because you're anyone who goes on a long car ride your back's killing you, you got to do a rest stop you got to start shifting around in your seat you got to start moving around and that's really the challenge is truly really, is there a way to get around that just it's built into the job performance it's difficult to say and we're trying to come up with solutions whether it be, you know, at every chance you get, get up, do a lap around the car. But there are components that we even recommend in the rehab sitting when we do patients that have to sit for a long period of time, whether it be in a squad car or in front of a computer. There are subtle techniques that you can do, pelvic tilting, kind of rolling your back into the chair. These subtle shifts that you tend to do just inadvertently, you kind of move around, it's like, oh, it kind of feels a bit better. All you're doing is changing where the pressure is aligned in your back. That is kind of the... Kind of the formula for why back pain tends to develop—it's too much pressure going in one position for an extended period of time. So, so movement is key, essentially. Keep moving
2: while you're sitting there. You can shift and like—are you saying it's best to just kind of shift your weight from side to side? Because it's really when you sit down in a squad car, you have a gun, you got a taser, you got magazines, you got handcuffs, and you got all kinds of tools around the entire belt. It's hard to just to move in that seat and and also is back compression the spinal compression is that what from sitting so much and and with extra weight
0: added on is that one of the biggest problems there's yes that's twofold i would say subtle movement and doesn't have to be big movement subtle movement is enough to matter over a long period of time, almost can just try to stay ahead of the back pain. And another caveat to that, which I typically hear is a lot of issues that, uh, that tend to try to get mitigated with a lumbar support, right? Everyone tries to push their seat up and haunch themselves up. And that actually can be just as detrimental because you're, what, what you want to avoid is one position for an extended amount of time, whether it's a good position or a bad position. You know, good posture, if you sit there for too long, it's gonna fatigue you out and start to get obnoxious. So try to change positions and move positions. The challenge with what you mentioned is the built-in weighing down is again is built into the job the belt the awkwardness that is the difficulty
2: the bulletproof vest is it's
0: it's, it's incredibly difficult so a lot of times you're know, asking simple solutions we'll just keep moving but a lot of times it's built in to be very difficult so i think opportunities to get out and move around shifting in your seat staying ahead of it every 15 20 minutes <clears throat> excuse me um Pelvic tilting is one of those very odd and weird positions, but it's actually probably the most effective means in just rolling your lower back into whatever's behind you just enough to take the pressure off and then releasing it. And I think a lot of times when we deal with low back patients, the awareness is always gonna be one of the best ways to mitigate it because it's constantly on your mind of I can do this, I can stay ahead of it a little bit more. A lot of times that has a huge benefit to just reducing that instance of having discomfort. But then two, it kind of gives you the control of the situation to know, okay, am I doing this properly? Am I not doing this properly? What is it supposed to feel like? And the pelvic tilting actually kind of is a streamlined right into how to properly train your your abdomen your core because when you when you perform an adequate pelvic tilt you will naturally engage your abdominal wall and so that is a, a very clear component when we look at training is you kind of carry the technique into something more functional like sitting in a chair and performing those tiltings uh really helps mitigate the stress that builds up over time and the second answer would be he said, is the compression yes? So we're always fighting gravity, and gravity is always trying to compress our spine. And you know, the spine is stacked pieces of bone structure with the discs in between, and they're just little cushions. And over time, wear and tear, age, The disc material is made of gelatin-like substance, but there's also water. And that water will naturally start to evaporate over time. That's just the natural process. So that cushion just gets a little bit more condensed and condensed. The longer we hold a static position, whether it be standing or sitting, that compression load builds Pressure builds on bone structure. Pressure bone, uh, builds on the disc structure. That can be uncomfortable. But then the muscle groups also start to get condensed because you're not moving them. So those muscles are just holding tight. And they're holding you up against gravity. If you didn't have those tight, you just kind of collapse down. So you have, it's almost like holding a bicep curl for that long. <laughs> you got to fatigue out. So you have to kind of do these subtle shifts to get these muscles to slowly contract and relax, contract and relax to give them some form of relief rather than just holding
2: with the spinal compression on I, I, I used to be as tall as Nate, but now after 20 years of wearing a gum Yeah.
3: Before we go any further, I was going to let Nate kind of run down what, what, what he does because I know he's going to give some technical answers so the listeners kind of know what his role is there at the Sports Academy with FIRST.
1: Yep, totally. So Nate Brunda, uh, again, my background is in exercise science. Um, I'm the executive director of our human performance program, uh, program. I manage uh, our California location as well as our Frisco location. So what I really do on a day-to-day is really set up the what I believe to be best-in-class practitioners, coaches, therapists that work underneath our uh, four walls at Sports Academy on on the West Coast and in here to be as successful as possible. So what I'm really looking to do is hire people that have specific expertise in specific domains so that they can all work together as part of an interdisciplinary team, uh, to better help, um, athletes succeed. And when we talk about athletes, we refer to, again, we're, we're talking about the first responder population as well. So, um, Right now, currently, with our involvement with First, we've kind of formalized our joint venture. So, Sports Academy and First are now um, officially, uh, legally uh, partners uh, in this new endeavor, where we hope to go into this world and kind of redefine the spectrum of care for the first responder.
4: Law enforcement is transitioning from the belt to more of a load-bearing vest, where it, where you're carrying um, your gear more on your chest as opposed to on your hips. Have you guys done any research on that? Or have you seen through some of your first responders that you've treated any differences in the the impact on the body with those?
1: Um, from a performance standpoint, and my mind goes immediately to kind of, uh, I would use an example of like a low bar back squat versus a high bar back squat versus a RDL or e- each thing has a different associative load vector with it, where you're, you might be putting more of an axial load, you know, if we're doing a high bar back squat or if we're doing a belt squat, you eliminate the axial loading of, of, of the, of the human body. So. When you talk about weight distribution from a performance standpoint for me initially it does not really matter where the load is distributed but if you understand that you have an extra 20 around the waist versus 20 up top or you have 20 up top now and you don't have 20 below your your performance program should be dictated to prepare the body for that demand
3: yeah i think it's interesting yeah i think it's a fallacy too i've noticed more and more people kind of mention now that we've gone to these load-bearing vests that well, now I won't have low back pain. And, and I look at them as they load up the front of their, their vest with all this gear. I'm like, no, nah, you're probably going to get worse because just as you just mentioned a minute ago, as we drive around in these vehicles or as we skip those type of workouts, anything that has to relate to core because it's probably a little bit more aggressive and more complex than, than going in and doing squats or bench presses most people do, they're supplementing just the, the weight going from down around their waist where it's centered probably and then bringing it up top where now we're dealing with more of a how much more of the lower back are we going to incorporate into that you know as far as that what does that do to our hips is that give us more of an anterior or posterior tilt and how are we going to have to compensate that throughout the day and I think to me it, when I hear people explain it it seems like it's it's probably a fallacy more than it is and just like you just explained you know it's kind of you have to tailor your workouts or your regiment to that? I mean, with that being said, are is there something that you guys would kind of recommend as far as uh, something that would be simple for individuals to do? I
0: would say, you know, from the load bearing perspective, having something around the chest, um, it does become more or there's a the potential for it to become more problematic from a low back issue. The more weight you carry on the front half of your system, there's more stress on the lower back to keep you vertical, to keep you upright. Um, conversely, though, when you wear that utility belt and you do have the weight a little bit more distributed, even that is more helpful, but it is at your hinge points, like mm-hmm. you mentioned the anterior and posterior tilt. There tends to be more of... Uh, a likelihood to put you in more of an anterior tilt when you're wearing excessive weight or anchored around the belt it just pulls the pelvis down and what happens with that is you tend to cause more of a curvature in your lower back which is what we mentioned that causes the increased pressure in your lower back and so there is kind of a two sides to the coin obviously in pros and cons um i have spoken to some first responders about who had military histories who mentioned that they do a lot of load bearing on the chest and they actually like that better because of the sitting perspective as well. So obviously when you're seeing the squad here and you have this around your waist, there is a lot of shifting that occurs. You have a gun on one side, you don't have one on the other. So there tends to be a natural kind of, even if it's subtle enough, over that longer period of time, the subtleties matter. And so when you start to shift or just carry yourself a little bit differently, that's where it tends to also pop up as well as one factor that also has to be taken into account. Carrying something on the front of your chest, not around the hinge point where you're sitting can actually be more beneficial. So I think there there's not, I haven't seen direct research behind one being better than the other. I definitely see pros and cons to both. Um, but I think the way it's going now, there's enough issues that pop up that might be helpful to look at something a little bit different.
2: I come from an old school workout mentality of four sets of 12 to 15 uh, increasing weight. It really doesn't help durability and, and, and flexibility, and I'm going more towards kettlebell. I do a lot of stuff to failure. Can you all give thoughts on that, on those? and, very, and I, I try to change up my exercises to trick my muscles. Can I get some thoughts on that, please?
1: I'll talk about the programming side. And then I think Chase has some really good stuff about the, I guess I'd say periodization of stress and kind of how that affects day to day for the first responder and all the good research that we're, we're really working on right now. But, um, as far as your training regimen, um, as long as there is a systematic way to a, get to an objective end goal, what I try to not do is come in and say, everything's bad. Right. So we still use and there's there's methods across the the world of human performance that, you know, have started way back when that are still used in collegiate settings, pro settings. Right. So when you talk about high volume uh, threshold training, so think about like a German volume training method. Right. So that's a 10 by 10 at a specific percentage of one RM in order to elicit a baseline GPP response, which is a general preparatory phase response to the tissue ligament and uh, muscle fiber associated with uh, whatever movement you might be looking to strengthen. So it could be a horizontal row with a vertical pull, it could be a shoulder press with a bent over row, whatever that might be. There are methods to set up a staged approach to elite performance whatever at, at whatever level you feel like that might be. So if you enjoy again participating in a cluster set, you know, pyramid set, uh, you know, what whatever your sauce is right now, great. If that is leading to right now reoccurring injury, both soft tissue and then also nervous system, autonomic nervous system fatigue, then maybe we should just revisit that. And then that's where I'll let Chase just talk about kind of stress implementation.
0: Yeah. And I think to kind of counter that as well, I think, you know, training goes in phases like everything, you know, you get a lot of Olympic lifting and then that phase out and then you get into CrossFit really popular in that kind of not to phase out, but things just kind of change in trends. And I think what we're also seeing now is, you know, power and strength and brute power output is important, but flexibility is king. You know, if you have all the strength in the world, what good is it if you can't move? And so I think when you're as dynamic as you have to be as a first responder, you really have to almost prioritize the movement function of your body to then utilize the strength that you've developed. So having some form of balance between utilizing the strength and obviously having a performance-based approach like Nate was mentioning, and then utilizing multi-plane movement. So adding rotations in with your core work, adding rotations in with uh, band work. I mean, that's becoming... A more of a trend as you're seeing that, especially in the athletic population, is multi-plane movements adding range of motion to the resistance work um, to build on that foundation that's been developed with with the power aspect. Um, and interestingly enough, we're doing a lot of... Uh, investigation in terms of how to approach this with the first responder population as it kind of circles back to the stress management aspect of the job and mental health. And there's actually some really interesting studies that we've uncovered and we're starting to implement in how we approach this as how do then a stress or how do you curtail your workout to manage your stress? How do you use exercise as a way to help your mental state? And what we've actually seen is the hypertrophy training. So what you're mentioning is uh, a percent of your one RM. Typically, 75% of your one rep max performed over 10 to 15 reps, actually spikes your cortisol levels higher than working at a lower percentage of your one RM. They looked at 60%, and they even looked at 90% of your one RM. 75% spiked your cortisol significantly, and the rationale behind that is they've seen another research study shows that and it kind of makes sense that cortisol will elevate in relation to how hard you're working so the harder you work the more cortisol you'll release and we know that cortisol is that stress response hormone which in a fight-or-flight situation can be very effective and necessary but when it's chronically in your system it can be really detrimental so our goal here is that when you're dealing with a really stressful personal situation whether it be from job or family We want to make sure we're also curtailing our workouts to not make a situation worse. Uh, And so, and again, a lot of the rationale behind the 60% is, of course, you're not working as hard as with a 75% RM, but what was kind of scratching our heads was the 90% RM didn't spike that cortisol as much as 75, but they show that you're not doing as many repetitions you're working harder over a shorter period of time. So what they realize is that that 75% is kind of this magic space where you're stressing your system from the load, but you're actually hanging out a bunch of reps. So the intensity and the duration matter. And so if you can curtail your, your lift and your approach to it within those kind of realms of, of intensity and frequency, it actually kind of be extremely beneficial from a physiological standpoint uh, to help mitigate that stress aspect.
4: We talked about spine compression, um, and there's a lot of tools out there, a foam roller, a yoga class. Um, in your opinion, your educated opinions, if I was to go out and purchase something or purchase a membership, what's going to help me the best way if I'm carrying a gear or a load as my job in those areas?
1: From a class perspective, and I'm, I'm just, again, I'm approaching it purely from a performance standpoint. If you're, and Chase will talk more about the clinical relevance as well, but for us, it's always the said principle. So specific demands that are associated with whatever movement you're looking to improve, you need to find something that will help you do that better. So if it's, hey, I need to work on bracing my core, well, maybe tr- uh, continue, continuous repetitive trunk flexion or sit-ups maybe is not the right thing. Maybe bracing isometrically in a plank, you know, front plank, side plank. Now, if I want to look at just not doing that because it's boring after a while, then how do yoga, how does yoga or Pilates play into that? There are variations of movements in yoga and Pilates that specifically lend themselves to more kind of isometric situations. A lot of those do get into pretty extreme joint angles and flexion and extension of the spine. So it's not, nothing bad, but as long as you look at ultimately what you're trying to get out of that, and that's a more stable trunk, if those movements are kind of lining up with your goals, then you're kind of on the right track.
0: I 100% agree. And I think it is twofold, the approach to kind of mitigate or reduce the prevalence for back issues is one is you have to look at the flexibility component because there are specific muscle tissues around the torso that will exacerbate low back issues or be a very clear predictor of having lower back issues. And specifically, that's hip flexor tightness or immobility, which is extremely common specifically to first responders because there tends to be a lot of sitting. So your hip flexor is in a shortened state for a long period of time, and that's just muscles sitting around the front of your hip pocket. There are essentially two hip flexor muscle groups, and <laughs> one of them attaches to the front of your lower back. So when that muscle is taut or adaptively shortened, it when, when you go to stand up, it's going to be a tug of war of which joint's going to move. And when you're standing straight on your limb, it's going to attach to the front of your thigh. When your thigh is straight, it's just going to start to pull that lower back into more of that, again, that curved posture and more pressure prevalence. So that is one component. If you look at kind of a foam roll or kind of a stretch approach, the hip flexor flexibility is really paramount to limiting lower back issues from Mm -hmm. developing. In terms of stretching your lower back or stretching lower back musculature, it's extremely difficult to do. I mean, it's thick muscle tissue. We're talking an inch to two and a half inches thick. It's a big slab of meat in your lower back. So to kind of stretch it, it's not as uh, simple, I would say, as that. Um, there's a lot of positions within yoga that will elongate the spine. That same concept of kind of rounding out your back to get you out of that curvature is really helpful. You'll take just the origin insertion of the muscle and kind of take them in opposite directions, which is extremely helpful. But like Nate was mentioning, really isolating your core development. And does it mean you have to walk around holding your stomach all the time? Not necessarily. But when you tone it and it's engaged well enough, you actually will develop that inherent stability so that those positions that irritate your lower back become less common. So in terms of a course or uh, a class, so if you're going to do a hip flexor, stretching, um, you, know, you can do that at home pretty simply. You can definitely invest in a foam roll. There are a lot of different techniques that you can look into. And then circling back to engaging some form of core positioning um, which, of your choice to make sure, again, it doesn't get boring, that it's important enough to you to make sure you stay consistent with it. And usually those lower back issues will tend to start to start to resolve.
3: Uh, Can you guys, since you mentioned the hip flexor, lower back, can you guys kind of mention how um, anything within that hip girdle can cause also like your TFL, your IT band, uh, all that can also cause not a phantom knee pain. It can cause knee pain just based on uh, inflexibility, immobility, especially down through the calf, the Achilles and all that stuff too that most people are are pretty common with.
0: 100%. I would say... You know, especially in a more dynamic population, you know, IT band issues um, are fairly common, especially amongst really active individuals that do a lot of running, stairs, things along those lines. Um, IT band, it actually has its own syndrome. IT band syndrome, in and of itself, is typically driven from hip weakness, and specifically your glute max and your glute med. You have three glute muscles that sit from the back pocket around to the side of your thigh they specifically when they are engaged uh, or conditioned is a better term they will extend the hips when you're when you're running they'll drive the leg back but they also will keep your hip underneath your ankle If, if you kind of drew a line straight from the outside of your your hip straight down your ankle what tends to happen with glute weakness over time, and as you get more dynamic, that hip starts to kind of kick out a little bit, almost like a little attitude hip. And what happens is, is over time, that becomes more and more prevalent. So when you become more dynamic, I go into a run, I go into a sprint, that mechanical issue of that hip kind of kicking out and your knee diving towards your midline, that will tension the IT band. It takes the origin up here at the hip and the insertion just below the knee and just tensions it. What tends to happen with that, the IT band, connects below the knee but it will pull the kneecap just to the side ever so slightly and your quad muscle helps keep it centered so with this tension of the it band is overriding the quads performance to keep your kneecap relatively stable over time that's when that kneecap starts to bark at you a little bit and becomes more of a problem than it really should be i've actually
2: had a torn patellar tendon and
0: it's a brutal injury oh tell me about it yeah that's a that's one of the, the yeah that and achilles from. that achilles
2: <laughs> terrifies me the most but yeah I've, that i've had two surgeries on that patella and it it was a bitch it, it wore me out all right you mentioned officers kind of doing the wrong things for core and not enough of the good things what are some of the stereotypical poor things that officers do that they don't really help and what do you recommend that officers should do to get the most bang for the buck
1: in, a, in the performance world for us, if I if I can just say one thing, I think that's we've mentioned a couple of times is, is trunk flexion exercises. So excessive crunches, heavy leg lifts, things of that nature where you seem you might, you know, hey, if I'm doing these tr- leg lifts, I might I might be activating my lower abdominals and this is how I get that this and this is how I get that this. To to Chase's point earlier, what you're actually doing is just exacerbating the issue because you don't have proper length tension relationships between the postural control. So you're just overloading a bad setup anyways. So you're already set up for failure, but let's overload it a little bit more. It sends you down the wrong path. So the 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 lowest and kind of kind of lowest spectrum of exercise without getting too technical is to learn how to do a a plank properly with a proper posterior pelvic tilt right? Engaging everything and, and practice that over time. And then you can go into variations from there.
0: And I would to 100% agree with that. And I think to Nate's point, what we don't know sometimes can hurt us. And a lot of times we just assume it's good for us. So we'll do it. And then again, inver- inadvertently exacerbate the issue. And the reason why that tends to happen something like with a crunch or a sit up is the higher you go into a sit up, You are engaging your abdominal wall, but you're actually using your hip flexors to pull you up. And like we mentioned, the hip flexor tightness is one of the precursors for the low back issues. And as we know, the more you train a muscle, typically the tighter it gets. Strength is tightness, right? So you are almost, again, inadvertently causing the problem to not necessarily resolve, but you're just letting it linger around because you're developing tissue. You don't necessarily want to become involved.
1: And I think one more point, which is kind of cool to maybe for you guys to think about, in the last 12-week program that we just completed with uh, current NFL prospects, five of them, which will be drafted in the top 10, we never did a single crunch. We did all anti-extension, anti-rotation, anti-lateral flexion, so everything working on the absolute stability in that range of motion prior prior to actually loading it. I'm so
2: glad you are talking about this. I mean, most people do crunches or, or half-ass planks just to have some kick-ass abs as opposed to strengthening it uh, for for longevity and, and, and flexibility?
4: Well, he mentioned a syndrome, the IT syndrome. There's three of us in here that have the mistress syndrome. And um, that's what we call it. It's the knot that's right by the shoulder blade from, from a sling and a rifle. And I'm sure there's many listeners out there that have it. And over years, that never goes away. And it, at times, it'll make you even nauseous. And so... To prevent younger officers who carry load, carry gear, how do you prevent from getting the mistress on on your back?
0: Uh, yeah, I would say kind of circling back to what we mentioned with mitigating the low back issues is movement. And so you know a lot of times when we're under load it's hard to stay active, you just want to hold it just hold it. I got to hold my position because that's got a lot of load on it. And what typically happens with kind of the mistress situation or kind of a knot, right? This kind of ball of tissue that tends to just not move or shift or resolve. What tends to happen with that is when muscle is put under a load and it's stretched and then it's held there for a long period of time, you're not getting a lot of blood flow or oxygenation going through that area because it's just holding. So when you're moving and you're shifting, that muscle is contracting and relaxing and all the blood vessels and tissues that are doing that are always kind of working like a pump. Those muscles are contracting, relaxing. It's allowing adequate blood flow to get in and out and clean up and also deliver adequate things to the tissue. So when you're just holding a position, you're not getting adequate enough into the area and that's where you tend to see kind of knots tend to come up is you lose that ability for that tissue to gain length again and that is over time can just become more and more problematic it just builds on itself to where it Man, I just can't get, like, get it to go away. So it's a very common area to develop these sort of issues with prolonged posture kind of rounded shoulders sure. and all you're doing is you're pulling your shoulder blades away from your midline and the muscle groups that keep you tight connect from the spine and then go straight across. So they're holding your shoulder blades in nice and tight like this so when you're rounded or you got a, got a lot of load on you and you're holding it your shoulder blades are just getting further and further away and these muscles are trying to hold those shoulder blades back you know and so over time again they just start to get fatigued and tired and then there's, that's where the problems start to arise or become more chronic so training your mid back training the muscle groups that really isolate your shoulder blade position so the mid trap specifically, goes straight across from your spine over to the shoulder blade your lower trap And this is kind of where we get talked about uh, potentially overhead athletes running into issues, uh, the whole shoulder column. We can have a whole nother subsection on that. But the lower trap is a specific muscle that really helps mitigate that protracted position, that rounded shoulder posture that helps over time prevent something that you mentioned, this kind of knotted mistress area where it just becomes problematic.
3: Then again, we go right back to now we've created that tension. And thus now as we want mobility in our shoulders or do a pressing exercise now all of a sudden we're like oh my shoulder hurts and you're going to the doctor for a shoulder pain and it's not your shoulder it's what's created back here somewhere else right i mean that's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it
0: 100 percent. i think the, sh- the shoulder is in my opinion is one of the most complex joints of the body um the most moving parts, multiple areas of connection between bone structures. And a lot has to happen right in the shoulder for it to work properly. And the shoulder is quite amazing that it can kind of overcome a lot of deficits because we're nowhere, all of us are perfect in our shoulder performance. But you can see it's just small kinks in the chain along along the way and then you go to add a heavy load and try to press overhead, it's like, oh, that's killing me. You know, that's where things get exposed is when you go to do something fairly dynamic or fairly heavy and if the shoulder or any joint really is not really prepared for it that's when we start running into the injury risk injury potential and then chronic issues start to happen
3: since we're talking about this and this is very common i I don't know about the firefighter population but i would i would imagine the same probably very similar Uh, though we have different jobs and have different equipment probably very similar but with all that being said these these pains officers continuously have knee injuries they continuously have uh Hip problems, um, whether that be from weak glutes or tight hip flexors, sitting in the car all day, and then getting up to run and they pull a hamstring or whatever it may be. But and then also shoulders from carrying all that weight. Um, I know Sports Academy has a program, uh, the treat and train. You know, had very fortunate I went in there with Michael Viedo and uh, had him work on me and learn some things about why I continuously have injuries on my left leg. And it had nothing to do with any of the stuff that i had ever thought of. It was my glute was not firing anymore. Uh, and that's just from over time and misconception, misunderstanding. But I would have never known that if I hadn't done that. So I know there's uh, you guys have that um, facility and that program there, uh, but for others who are not, let's say not near the sports academy, but need to actually go get evaluated as far as range of motion, uh, A, would you recommend it? B, where else can somebody go to kind of mitigate those issues or correct them?
1: Uh, Two answers. One would be we would love to have people come to the lighthouse, right? That's always the goal is kind of get people to the brick and mortar so they kind of understand. I think the second is what we're doing here right now. And how we can repurpose this on our social media channels and do t- testimonials, do education hours, live demonstrations. And then we're actually working on an app right now. So cool. oh, first wow. we'll have Great. an app uh, where you'll be able to have live coaching videos from Chase, uh, in-service moments from Heather, um, tutorials, workout programs, progressions, regressions, things of that nature. So that's in the pipeline right now.
2: Yeah, this episode uh, is unlike others that we normally do. We usually do uh, first responders or critical incidents and about their injury, whether physical or mental uh, in recovery. We've had Dr. T uh, on and we've had on other other, uh, counselors. As far as workouts go, can you explain volume manipulation in the workouts? I've heard y'all mention that before.
1: Chase, do you want to talk about the, there's a two part answer to this. One is the placement of the workouts based on their intensity and how it should follow along with your actual work week. And then the rest is just goes into actual like sets, reps and manipulation of that. So I'll, I'll let chase talk about that and then I'll pop in on the back
0: end. Yeah, absolutely. I hope I don't take too much time up on this subject because it's actually really fascinating. So very passionate about it. <laughs> it's like popped up in my chair here. So closer to the mic. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. So uh, the first point would be, how does the first responder approach exercise as a way to help physically, of course, but then also mentally. And obviously, you know, training isn't just training, you know, and there is a right way to do it from a physical perspective, what you want to get out of it from power, flexibility, and then also what you can be doing to your body physiologically to help mental states. Um, Referencing what we discussed earlier in terms of the research that Working out at a 75% 1RM is a strict spike in cortisol compared to working out at a 60% RM or a 90% RM, strictly power. And so when we look at that, how you'd approach that or how you can interpret that as an officer, that you're dealing with an injury, you might have to adjust, but if you're dealing with something challenging from uh, a stress side, a mental side, really having a downtime, we would always encourage exercise as a means as to help assist with that. I'll get to that in a second but using exercise as a way to exacerbate the stress is definitely something we might be inadvertently doing. So as a, as a way to kind of make an example, um, a critical incident occurs, you go home, you kind of do your typical management, and then you're going to go into the gym and do what you've always done. you're going know, to, I'm going to clang it out. Um, and like, as you were mentioning, you know, I might grab some weights and it happens to be around 75% of your one RM plus or minus a couple percents and kind of hash it out, get in there for an hour, crank it out, sweat, heart rates up, sweats up. And then I go home and I'm like, man, I, Didn't help at all, you know. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it might not. And physiologically, the research shows that it's actually going to be quite detrimental. So, having an approach towards a specific situation when we are a little stressed out, when we have had some issues, recognizing sixty percent or below is ideal. Ninety percent working on the lower repetitions is kind of ideal when you're in kind of that window after something critically has happened. On the flip side, we've looked at resistance training, cardiovascular training, uh, a hit type approach, which of course is really popular. Cardiovascular exercise is one of the most aggressive in terms of release of cortisol. And it follows the same approach as the harder you work and the longer you train, the higher your cortisol tends to go. So there a couple of research articles have actually shown that we're even working out like a steady jog at like a 60% of your heart rate. So you're not kind of like a eight and a half minute mile nine nine minute mile approach on a treadmill if you did that for 60 minutes it's going to spike your cortisol the same as if you did the same approach of an hour jog but you went a little bit harder so intensity matters but also the duration matters as it relates to aerobic exercise so how that also then relates to resistance training is the same approach the harder you work the higher your cortisol tends to go um Hit training also because you're then combining the two. You're doing some high-level aerobic as well as some resistance training. But what the research has shown is that if you're at a baseline level of cortisol, which is our stress response hormone, and you go into a workout and you do very vigorous exercise, and the study described vigorous as about 80% effort in terms of a cardio, and then you get that specifically cardiovascular, over a 45-minute workout. You look that they then assess cortisol levels 45 minutes after the workout. And then they put that person through a stress test. So a psychosocial stress test to see what your cortisol would do. Your stress level actually, cortisol release went down. So, and they continue to research this and they found that through exercise, if dosed properly can actually blunt the effects of a psychosocial stressor happening to your system and really sending you off into an excessive amount of cortisol and really damaging state. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at exercise as a way to help bring you out of, a lot of cortisol from psychosocial experiences, but then also using exercise as a way to help dose and almost kind of build resiliency within the system to tolerate something that's outside of your control to really help assist the system of kind of getting back to a baseline quicker. So we're not dealing with those stressful states physiologically for a longer period of time than we really need to.
1: Um, and then on the exercise prescription standpoint, uh, we always, Uh, Preach that you need to understand what your week looks like currently and where your biggest stressors might be And I know a lot of the response might be well, we don't know it could happen tomorrow It could happen then you kind of you kind of understand that that's a global that's a that's okay That's a baseline we get that But there are still days of the week that you work and there's days of the week that you might not work So let's look at the week strategically and understand I might know that between wednesday and friday there might be a lot of high stress points But monday and tuesday and sunday maybe not as much so if I know that my uh, musculoskeletal system needs 48 to 72 hours to repair from heavy resistance training, should I do that the day before I head into shift? Or should I maybe put that on the front end of the week so that my system can repair itself a little bit differently? Maybe I'm actually a little bit more prime potentiated for the workload associated with that. The, the hopefulness thats that you'd be a little bit more conscious about how your week and the trends of the week look. You can't change what happens inside of it which is very similar to like a game, right? I can't tell an athlete there's gonna be 19 cuts to the left. It might be one cut to the left and 45 to the right. But if the, if the, if the muscle in, in the tendons and the ligaments are not prepared for demand of the sport regardless, it doesn't matter.
2: First responder decision-making <clears throat> and mental acuity is paramount. What does FIRST
0: do to refine that? So I would say there's two components there. Um, and the research is pretty clear. Stress response tends to reduce cognition and um, acuity, as you mentioned. Uh, what tends to happen with the cortisol release and the stress response release is they've actually shown that the prefrontal cortex, the area for higher level decision making and kind of your, uh, your guide, if you will, of how we're approaching a situation actually reduces the activity. Slowly starts to shut down. The other component that's also involved with excessive cortisol release is you actually have the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory and memory recall, actually starts to shut down and can shrink over long periods of time. So what we've actually sh- we've actually seen the research is the exercise dosing dosing properly can actually reverse these. Um, Over long periods of time, more cardiovascular demand specifically, I believe resistance training has a uh, pretty significant effect, but they've researched more specifically cardiovascular exercise as a way to reverse any sort of hippocampal shrinkage that tends to happen as the aging process, but then also with excessive cortisol in the system. And then two interesting when they look at research as a way of exercise priming the mind is you actually get a heightened level of growth factors that help learning. And they actually stimulate the system to kind of awaken up a little bit. So they've done a lot of research in terms of exercising individuals and then putting through a learning process and doing significantly better than the their control group, which just kind of stood around and went to the same process. Um, they've looked at high schoolers, putting them through exercise routines, really high level cardio, and then having them go through their school day, scores skyrocket, attention skyrockets, difficulty with... Um, uh, behavior goes, you know, improves. So there's definitely a a correlation between what happens to the body on a physiological state to help support the mental processes, mental acuity, memory recall, memory retention. And that's kind of what we base it off of from the exercise perspective, supporting mental on those specific parameters. And then Nate can help also explain too, we have a cognition component from a training perspective that we can kind of piggyback off of that. Yeah. So, so, I couldn't
1: have said it better myself and that's why for us so you know what's wrong you know the the associated factors the research but what, what do you actually do for it and that's where on the sports academy side we're so excited to kind of marry in our technology where we work heavily in kind of that brain side so we specifically have technology that works on training the brain right training the vestibular system working with people that are even coming back from concussions memory recall, executive processing, hand-eye coordination, reaction speed, things like that. So we've actively had that uh, software inside of Sports Academy uh, for a long time now, and we've been perfecting it over the years and actually have it in different lines uh, of all different populations of athletes where we're building these normative data sets where you know, if you actually go in and go against someone of your peers and do a baseline screen that might take eight minutes, you can kind of see where your processing speed lines up to the next individual, right? Male and female categories separate and all that good stuff. But what's really exciting is that you know now, you have a very accurate understanding of how your how your brain works, but then there's a plan to train it and improve it over time. Because as Chase said, we're constantly doing things in our life and just general, we're, everyone's getting old, right? We're all, <laughs> all your know, function is slowly, steadily declining as much as we don't want to talk about it. So, but what we can do is provide a solution to help mitigate that. That's very easily dispersed across multiple different platforms and it will be included inside the app. So you can do things uh, at home, on the job, whip it out,
3: so. Yep. We, we keep talking about cortisol. You mentioned the hippocampus. I think we probably touched on it a little bit with Dr. T and uh, Dr. Glenn probably a little bit when they talked about cortisol. But, I mean, can can you explain uh, why that's important and uh, what that does? Because that would tie into, like, Nate talking about cognition and regulating this cortisol and helping the hippocampus and then... <clears throat> How this all ties in and why it's important because we keep mentioning it.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I th- I think, and and I don't want to come off um, as though cortisol is a bad thing, right? Because the cortisol is necessary and it is the stress hormone. And in an acute situation, you know, acute stressor, fight or flight, it is vital. It keeps us alive. You know, it makes decision making quick. It makes decision making proper, um, and it logs that memory so that we're ready the next time something like that happens. That's what it initially does on the hippocampus side is it stores that memory. You recognize it again. So the next time something like that happens, I'm going to respond even faster. And that's the importance of it. When cortisol, though, gets in the system chronically, and chronically is different for different individuals, but we're talking about elevated levels because we're constantly in that stress state, it actually turns quite toxic. And that, and it can be toxic in multiple levels physically uh, in terms of excessive weight gain. There's an increase in diabetic tendencies because you become insulin resistant. There's a lot of factors physiologically that tend to cascade down from excessive cortisol in the system. Specifically, though, they've seen that excessive cortisol levels, and you see this in a lot with um, not necessarily just first responders, but also individuals that have just excessive cortisol floating in the system, their hippocampus size does tend to shrink over time more speedily than if just the aging process had taken over. And how that then plays out is again, memory recall, memory recognition, that is diminished. And so that makes you less likely to recognize a situation appropriately, makes you less likely to experience something the same because again, you're not able to rely on that previous experience quickly as you would have had it been prepped. And so that's why it's really important to recognize the cortisol levels in the system Excessive stress is built into the job. Then how do we mitigate those levels as best we can from kind of a conservative approach, really, instead of using medication, using exercise as a way to help assist that, mitigate that, and then help train the systems that we know get impacted by that.
3: Yeah, because you were talking about um, uh, raising or elevating your heart rate. You're talking about the high school kids, like from that book, Spark. Yes, sir. Yeah, very similar in, in how it was, hey, we're utilizing exercise and up-to-date current science that none of us had going to high school probably not you guys either and you know you're told to do sit-ups and all these other things that obviously we're saying are probably not great for you but the um but the piece of that is that we're utilizing the exercise and that would mitigate possibly the use of medication whereas we're doctors are very quick to if you're having anxiety, depression, well, we're just going to put you on this regimen of medication. We're just going to not dope you up, but we're just going to put you on this medicine. You're going to stay on this medicine, but it's it's good. And I guess my point being is that understanding these things, it brings you hope and uh, brings you uh, a healthier lifestyle, just not only f- – mentally or physically but your overall well-being you know you're talking about the hippocampus we all have that brain fog right and it's very common in police officers and probably firefighters as they've had this stressful career and we think there's something else going on misty and i were in swat and you know we have brain fog and danny as well uh and uh you automatically turn toward okay well we were explosive breachers so all of a sudden now it's like do i have a tbi Am I, you know, is there something else going on here? And it's just its just a whole new world that people are just not open to or hear or see. But now, obviously, especially with y'all and science and technology, man, it's, it's incredible, the, the gains we have now.
4: You mentioned the Spark book. And in that book, um, one of the things I found very interesting was how in these PE classes where they were doing these testing, they used a heart rate monitor. And yeah. in our generation... If you didn't run a mile in, say, seven minutes or whatever, you were being lazy. And they, they 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 showed in that book that some people's heart rates were sky high, and they were working as hard as they possibly could, and we're still getting really good results. And I was going to ask you guys, do you take each person individually as they come in, and, 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 and how do you work with that? Say it's a retiree or a rookie or
1: Y- yes, is the answer to that. I okay. would say one of the big things that we stack on is like what you what you measure you can manage. So inside of the diagnostics process that we've set up, all those different aspects of human performance, we want to kind of uncover when they're in there on the first day. So if we're looking at cardiopulmonary health, we're, we're specifically going VO2, right? We're assessing an ECG. We're looking at how, how that system functions. And then specifically, once we have that kind of data, we can then set up a program specifically where an individual If needed to can wear a chest strap heart rate, right and be able to track and monitor different zones When it comes to either their entire workout or we would only wear it during their energy systems development section Which you know for one given day it could be steady state aerobic training The other day it could be more of a metabolic day where it's more interval based right But understanding what zones and where to go into with objective data It's easier than just kind of being like yeah, I feel like i'm working pretty hard or i'm out of breath
4: I think most of us just kind of are always guessing. And so someone listening to this, how do I, how do I make that first step? How do I make an appointment or how does it work?
1: I guess we could both technically answer this. Um, first has a definite, uh, website right now. We're revamping it due to the new partnership, so it's going to be ready to go, but I'm pretty sure we can call and schedule through through first actively right now, um, we're working on our social media platforms as well, so you'll be able to contact us through that. Um, obviously, the facility is located in Frisco, Texas, so um, we're trying to be as accessible as possible. Uh, we do do mobile uh, trainings as well, so we go to departments. Uh, we have no limit to where we will go. So, you know, if there ever is a need, uh, even Chase myself, we have kind of inside of the program what set up is like a lunch and learn, so people can book us for time to come to the department speak with whatever group that they might want to, look at their space, reevaluate how they're doing performance, if they're doing performance, or if you go into the fitness area and it's just, you know, some stickers on the wall that says reverse lunges, pushups, and sit-ups is your daily workout. Okay. Let's reevaluate that. Look at the gym equipment, kind of be a little bit more of a, of a help in that space. So, um, but yeah, Chase, the exact phone number, I don't know if you have that memorized, but I definitely don't. Just
0: draw that on me.
4: Well, yeah, what if I Google it? Am, am I Googling yep. first, and that's an F, and the I in first is actually a one. Correct. Yes. R-S-T. And will, when I Google that, will I find the answers that I'm looking for?
1: Right now, I would say you would, but sooner than later it's going to be a lot easier but that that would be the right way to start
2: whenever whenever this is released we're going to actually post all of your uh social media and all your uh, contact info so the listeners and it's going to be in the episode description so we'll we'll have we'll have y'all's dr t's the entire organization's info on there i've already got it laid out and then by then by, by what time this is released you will uh have your uh social media platforms uh, going on.
1: And we have our Instagram live right now. It just is not fully activated so that you can follow us at first underscore P E R. So that stands for perform, endure, recover. Okay, perfect. Very uh, immediate
2: response is one of the most primary police functions. Identify th- threats and then acting. How can physical fitness play a factor in that?
1: Specifically, um, physical fitness um, as it pertains to uh, performance adaptations and injury prevention. For I'll go back to kind of what we talked about earlier. It's it's the it's the demands associated with movement, and if those are not trained during the times that you're actually doing your physical fitness or your strength and conditioning, your body's not going to be prepared to get into uh, specific joint angles and then produce force off of those different joint angles. So for us, it's as specific as understanding um, if you walk down to the parking lot right now and sprint there's different uh lever links and joint angles that happen in your lower extremity as far as uh, you know hip flexion then leg extension and when your foot strikes the ground at about 60 degrees of knee flexion there's specific things that happen at your hamstring at that end range of motion now if you've never exposed your hamstring to that end range of motion and asked it to violently produce force then you're setting yourself up for failure in the long term so there is actually a proper way to do progressive hamstring training. I'm just going with the hamstring right now, where you would challenge it through isometric and eccentric training, but you'd do it at different joint length different joint lengths. And then as you go through your training program Every exercise is not just a, a Russian deadlift, right? That's kind of what we know. Let's do the RDLs. But there are different exercises that you can do and different uh, times and intensities that you can do to introduce a new demand that should prepare and strengthen the muscle in all those different joint angles. So when you're asked to respond quickly, you're not just going to, you know, the common thing is like, well, I'm going to get out and get my 10 minutes of foam rolling. I'm going to do breathing. I'm going to try. It's not possible, right? Which is exactly why from an athletic perspective, you guys are very much like athletes, right? In a basketball game when someone's running up and down the court and someone steals a ball, I may have been prepared to get ready to take a three-point shot, but now I need to sprint. I need to move as fast as possible. If if my body's not prepared for that demand physically and from a cardiovascular standpoint, I, again, the re- the risk for injury goes, goes up. So it's not like every time you take off you're going to pop an Achilles, but the likelihood over time. So...
0: And I think, yeah, to piggyback off of what Nate was mentioning, I think the big take-home point, which I always kind of like to default to this, is it's very important to view this as an ability to not let your job train your body. You need to train your body for your job. I think you have to break down your tasks of what you see yourself doing in your daily routine realistically do I have to inadvertently sometimes go from sitting to a full sprint? Well, maybe we should do a little bit of sprint training like Nate was kind of mentioning. Do I do a lot of rotational? Am I going to be knocking down a door? Maybe I should add in some more rotational core performances. Am I a heavy lifter? Am I going to have to carry a lot of bags? Do I have to perform something with the shoulder? Let's start to train that rather than Nate, kind of Nate was mentioning, going in and just picking the, the workout of the day when it's really not going to translate over to that specific officer or that specific job demand.
2: Can you describe the importance of proper form for a dynamic style workout? Because we, I see a lot of people uh, in all types of workouts—CrossFit or just uh, Olympic style uh, uh, free weight lifting—that they have terrible form. There's a lot of injuries. Can you describe the proper form? The importance of that?
0: Yeah, I would. Uh, well, this is a this is a trigger topic here because there's those CrossFitters, right? It's like. Go to failure. Sued Every, by cross yeah, field. right, right. So I'll be <laughs> careful here. Um, just because of my background, I'll will preface it with this way because you <laughs> deal a lot with injuries, right? Um, the more sloppy you get, the likelier you are to run into an issue. And that's to put it plainly: when you add, t- you ask tissue to do something it's not designed to do, it will over time start to fail. So, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm just getting ready. Um, (laughs) Form really is, I mean, everyone kind of said, form is everything. You really need to be specific and you need to isolate to specific movements, muscles that will perform those movements and make sure the load is appropriate. So typically we see kind of in a rehab setting, for instance, you know, someone's like, I want to get back to doing X, Y, and Z. And they start to load it back up and their form is just gone, gone all haywire. Yeah, now we know why we got here, right? It's because you're just not doing it properly. More isn't always better. And sometimes it's actually the opposite that you need to train the movement specifically, get the motor control for it, and then start to add the load onto that movement pattern. And so if we can scale things back and just be very specific, Rather than just trying to force the movement, it's a lot harder than it seems, especially as you start to grade load onto it. And that's what you lost time see in the rehab, saying you scale things way back. It can be pretty eye-opening when you really try to isolate things specifically and then start to add on complexity and load. And I'll let Nate kind of talk on on that component.
1: Um, I mean, not, not again don't want to make it a crossfit bashing session cuz i know we work with a lot of individuals that do a lot of different things right there's some people that love crossfit and it's like their lifeline there's a lot of people that are jiu jitsu athletes i was talking to a couple of firefighters um, uh, one tore his pec completely off the bone doing jiu jitsu oh. right and but he said that was my that was my that was my thing jiu jitsu was unbelievable it gave me a chance to to let out some stress this that, and the another thing and i think what we want to try to do is not create this fear around what goes on in our daily lives, because we can't be fearful of things like that. But all we can say is, to Chase's point, if volume and load are not managed properly, which is, let's just give a clear example of like, if I go from doing 20 reps of something at a specific weight and then I feel confident and cocky and then I do do 50% more volume the next week, it's the research shows that that's setting yourself up for failure. It's probably not gonna happen on the next Tuesday, But eventually things could happen that way. So all we're saying is if you do do CrossFit, you know, more power to you, I would try to find time to work with, you know, someone that a knows human movement that can work on soft tissue manipulation, corrective exercise, make sure that things inside of your body are functioning properly as you go along your journey. Because the biggest thing that we don't want you to do is we don't want your shoulders to uh, exposed or be exposed to a uh, overhead loaded movement on a snatch and you've never learned how to properly upwardly rotate your scapula or have proper rhomboid or mid trap control like chase was talking about earlier
2: yeah i'm not bashing any any style of workout i, I mean i'm just glad people are actually working out yeah. i tailor my workouts to my many injuries i have two level neck fusion and my patellar and I, i'm beat to hell but what <laughs> i what i've seen is a lot of people that are very some, some unathletic people trying to do very athletic movements and compete with several people around them that are at different levels of athleticism. And that's where a lot of injuries go. They're going to failure and their form goes to shit, but they're trying to get as many reps as the very athletic person and the the better shape person. And then, you know, the the injuries come.
0: Yep. And, And to that point, I think, you know, and what we're really trying to do with this program really is the educational piece, but to your point also like heart rate monitoring or using some form of biomarker it keeps you within your own lane, right? You work to your own capacity and it's very difficult to kind of have those blinders on and look around the gym and kind of see a partner of yours or a buddy Mm of yours really pushing and you're trying to join in. There's natural camaraderie that comes with that. But again, there's potential for issues. So kind of having that idea of stay within my means, you can build appropriately, but have those blinders on and just stay focused on my level of intensity, my level of performance and keeping in mind how I'm doing it is just as important as like how much or how frequently I'm doing it.
4: I would say most first responders are chronically dehydrated. Um, what, what is your thoughts on hydration? And cause we, um, yeah, we're constantly drinking monsters like right here in coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I know we're all doing the, how (laughs) does it really affect (laughs) performance and, and how you feel?
1: Um, from the performance side, well, just from our, our newest partnership, which well, I wish these guys were here with us, but Thorn. So we just, uh, announced our kind of, we didn't formally announce it. We'll have a press release coming in April, but we partnered with Thorn. So Thorn is by far the industry, uh, leader when it comes to kind of nutritional in the nutritional space, specifically, they're coming from a medical side of things. That's how they started was kind of more in the clinical setting. And now they're kind of one of the industry leading, if not I would say top three supplements that are used across all lanes of athletics from pro all the way down. So what we're excited about why that's so important is because we know that nutrition is is paramount when it comes to any kind of performance adaptation. So what Thorne is going to bring to first is we're now going to have access to Tons of professionals from RDs to doctors, so on and so forth, both virtual and in-person solutions, screenings, gut testing, biomarkers, uh, all this different stuff that maybe, you know, hey, I just need to drink a couple of bottles of more water. Maybe that's not the end. You know, have you ever gotten your blood tested? Have we ever seen what kind of uh, maybe endocrine dysfunctions that you have? That that all stuff is now going to be possible through the partnership with Thorne.
3: Very cool. You touch on that, and that's also something that maybe you guys can touch or kind of expand on this but you know we're always looking for a quick fix right so if you hurt you run to the doctor you get looked at and uh, no offense uh, to any doctor but you know it's very specified as to how we treat ourselves and then you get to nutrition and that's a big factor but you also hit on something too which was having a blood panel done and how the uh, the effects of poor nutrition but also will we'll lay into maybe negative components on a, a blood test, which might give the reason why, hey, I'm feeling a certain way. Because, you know, now that the testosterone clinics are up and running and they're a real big deal, people run there and they get these shots and they think that's going to make me feel good. But some people don't ever actually get the extended blood panel to test themselves for, D deficiencies, Bs, you know, all all these different things that could cause serious stress related problems or possibly create that cortisol effect. And can you guys kind of touch on all that as well, since you just kind of hit it?
0: I think it adds to the specificity of what we're really trying to provide. You know, we don't want to guess, you know, that's where things go bad. Um, And so it's the same way as picking out an exercise routine. Instead of just guessing, I'll just do this, uh, it might be helpful. And again, true, sometimes something's better than nothing. But being as specific as we can is is really vital. So having something like a blood panel can give you a window into what is actually happening on a very specific level that you can't really get another way. Um, It can help guide a lot of treatment plans in terms of supplementation, how you approach an exercise routine, are we dehydrated, how's our cortisol levels, uh, testosterone levels, do we need to work out a little bit specifically to help boost those levels a little bit more organically rather than running to a clinic and getting shots or pellets. Um, So there's a lot of different means to go instead of the quick fix uh, when you get something like a blood panel to say, okay, I'm off on four or five issues. How do those then interplay on how I'm feeling? And then let's find solutions that are, they might not be the quickest or the fastest, but safer and typically more effective than going through a medicinal route or a shot route or something that is not necessarily going to direct the entire system that specifically.
2: Well, it's good to know your body and for what, they actually, what actually is going on as opposed to what you just see in the mirror, right? 100%.
0: 100%. Uh,
2: Nate, I got, got a question for you. It's a hot conversation in, in the country. Uh, can you describe your participation in the article uh, regarding uh, effects of wearing cloth mask on performance?
1: Yeah, so it was an awesome study that we were able to be a part of with Baylor, Scott & White. Uh, Dr. Simon Driver and his team over at Baylor, Scott & White are definite industry leaders. We're working right now, and uh, we actually have a meeting later today with them to discuss kind of first involvement with this research world and how we can kind of partner up to bring these issues forward inside of the first responder community. So there's a lot of different things that I know Chase is excited about that I'm excited about. There's all these different research topics that there's just not like a lot out there. And and when Chase is digging into the research, you look at research as a way to guide how we program, how we kind of set up things so that they're evidence-based. But if the population isn't specific, you're kind of looking at a little bit of like apples and oranges. Sometimes it might be healthy collegiate basketball players. Well, that's not the first responder population. So the data can be informative, but is it as specific as possible? So that's where we get excited because we feel like there's a lot of opportunity moving forward. But as far as it pertains to what we did with the study, um, there were actually a lot of really good findings. Uh, one of the ones being a significant reduction in uh, peak VO2 when wearing a mask. So there was a lot of effect, uh, effects of wearing a cloth mask and how it it duress the individual and there were environmental factors, psychological factors, self-reported, um, outcomes. And then they're, they're watching all the different biomarkers. So heart rate, they're, they're testing their lactate levels. Um, they're looking at how, how they have the ECG going. So they're looking at all these different things. And what was really cool was the participants that did not wear the mask, were able to go, again, I think it was a little over 26% longer than the group that were wearing masks. So there was almost this, and don't quote me on the exact percentage, but there was the The significant difference in performance when you were wearing a mask. Now for us in in our world, what does that mean? It's very relevant. It's it's not something that's like, oh yeah, it's extremely relevant because when you're asking an individual to put out a max effort, uh, whether it be sprinting, running, jumping, and if you take away 30% of their capacity, I need to factor that into their program. I shouldn't be asking them to do the excess. Maybe I should be backing off just a little bit and then giving them graded exposure or maybe 5% increases in volume of training over time to help them build up to that level where they're actually able to go do it versus just saying, Hey, put on a mask. Now go do the same thing that you were doing two seconds ago. The research shows that that it's impactful. it affects performance.
2: And It's very fascinating, especially with, with what's going on right now and all the, you can, you can find a hundred different articles fighting each other.
1: Yep. Yep. And and one of the good things is they looked at all the different aspects associated with it. So it wasn't just um, like their lactate thresholds and VO2, but it was their psychological uh, view of exercise with and without a mask. And that is extremely important. And even in performance, when you look at someone's neural intent to perform a movement, if that is not in the right place, the movement is either underperformed or performed incorrectly.
3: Yeah.
4: You're the co-author. You're published. Yes. Where, where, if if some of our uh, listeners wanted to read it, where would they find it?
1: Uh, so, pretty easy. You can go on Google, um, search British Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, their article, if I remember correctly, wasn't published too long ago, so it should be pretty much there. The British Journal of Sports Medicine is one of the one of the largest, so you can kind of search, you know, the effects of cross mass and exercise, and it should like auto-populate to the top of the page.
0: Usually there's a few databases too. PubMed is a pretty common yep. um, where they'll just database research articles. It's one of the deepest. So if you have trouble Googling it, you can also like go to a database PubMed and they'll pop it up and you get PDF and all that good stuff.
2: Nate, hey, can you describe, I hate to put you on the spot again. Can okay. you describe uh, you're contracted by WB and Netflix?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so actively with through sports Academy's history, all we've been doing is, putting ourselves into different ecosystems where we feel like it's underserved from a performance standpoint. So on the West Coast, it started a lot because inside, you know, sunny Southern California, you got all the uh, the fancy actors and all that good stuff that live there. So a big part of that is, is making connections with different local agencies that look to put their actors in the best possible shape if it goes into a role that might be more physically demanding. So you know, it could be a Western movie that they need to learn how to ride a horse and jump off and tackle or do something crazy, right? That person may never have that exposure to that. So now all of a sudden they're going to that type of training, but it's like, well, I need supportive performance training to make sure that I'm not going to kill myself along the way. Or it's a body composition uh, issue where the sup- the role is a superhero and the individual needs to get tight from a body composition standpoint. They need to shred up, they need to look good, Um, and so where we've had successes, we've always been in the, in the circle of human performance but now these actors and entertainers and one thing that they love is you know all the actors entertainers and musicians want to be athletes all the athletes want to be <laughs> actors entertainers and musicians so there, there's kind of this camaraderie and this cool dynamic that happens inside the inside the four walls at the academy and, and chase can speak to this i mean we've had we've had first responders working out next to first round draft picks next to you know a, a nine-year-old jiu-jitsu athlete that just won a gold medal down in dallas over the weekend like there's just this interesting kind of eclectic popular That comes into the four walls. And where I think Heather and Chase would both agree, I think Heather said it the other day is we're trying to make this cool, right? At the end of the day, this is important to understand that this isn't just like we're robots, we're marching, we're doing this, we're doing no, like you guys should be exposed to these resources because this is what the best in the world are doing to improve their draft stock or get that extra $20 million contract or have a chance to be a world champion. So aligning those resources have have always been a passion of ours. Um, So that's how we kind of stumbled into working with agencies like CAA, um, all these different things that represent both music and creative artists. And then they would contract us specifically to go out with the actors on set and manage their dietary needs, you know, go shopping for them, live with them, things like that. So I actually had the opportunity to go travel with a bunch of uh, a bunch of our clients, and we still do. A lot of our coaches still do. Um, specifically, one of the one greats that w- we have a good relationship with is Jamie Fox. So I was able to travel with him on multiple movie sets, both in Atlanta, and New Orleans, and it was very eye-opening to understand. And this kind of aligns with the point that we we're talking about earlier. It, performance is not a linear journey and there's so many different things that pop up day to day where you write this amazing program out and it's all scheduled excel you got graphs pie charts and hey this is our plan and I distinctly remember one time even Jamie like uh waking up on a Tuesday and we had just talked about his weekly schedule and uh he goes nah no we're not doing that today <laughs> and I would I was oh, okay um damn okay here we go so whoosh, so but that's a perfect example of like what life is and so we've often found that it's not a linear process. You have to be adaptable, you have to auto-regulate, but you have to provide people the best in class resources so that when they're ready or at whatever time they're ready, the answer's there for them.
2: Some of those West Coast folks need to read that article, I think, on the on the cloth mask. <laughs> send that over to them. <laughs>
1: it is, I agree. is region specific. West Coast
2: folks. Yeah, yeah, West Coast folks. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you mentioned uh you mentioned something in and yeah the uh what you guys have developed is, is very unique. And, uh, you know, I I commend all of you on your, your dedication.
2: I got one final question for you guys. What <clears throat> sets FIRST apart from other programs' approach to physical wellness for first responders? It's for both of y'all.
0: I think from my perspective, it's holistic, and that's kind of a – I don't know it's kind of a cheesy word but holistic in the fact that we recognize the challenges facing the first responder population it's not just a gym where we put up a bunch of workouts for you guys to do and make it hard you know we look at the individual from the individual as how is your life how are you doing in your job what's their stress levels doing to you how are you doing with your blood panel How are you doing with your blood pressure how can we impact that through exercise is this not a good day for it? do we need to curtail something do we need to go sit with dr t and we need to kind of hash out some things there you know correlating the system from the mental capacity and the physical capacity and putting them together is really a unique component and a lot of times they are treated as very separate things and to us, and especially to me, that's the exact opposite of how it should be approached. And as I think that does what sets us apart is we integrate all pieces of information on a very specific and objective detail to make sure we know what we're dealing with, we have a very clear view of what's going on, and then a plan to then address it.
1: And I would just go back to kind of the vernacular that uh, Dr. Heather's created, right, with first, and that's preparing to recover, right, and being responsible from a preventative side, not being reactive. I think that's where we stake our claim is, you know, there are a lot of things that there's a lot of remediation programs. There's a lot of things that people get sent to do once they realize that they're not good enough or they're not fit enough or they hurt themselves. But what we want to do is change the dynamics so that we're on the front end of that.
2: I think it's a great way to wrap it up uh i want to thank you all for what you're doing you're going to extend first responders lives beyond their careers which is more important so we don't walk away from this job broken down physically and mentally i just want to thank you so much for your time of coming over here and uh and sitting with us and getting this information out whenever we release this episode like i said we are going to put all of your information in the into the episode description so all of the listeners will have access to that thank you so much
4: thank you guys
3: thank you for having thank us thank you the listeners again. it's been a pleasure